with meetings in parking lots And that's the thing about illicit affairs And clandestine meetings and longing stares It's born from just one single glance But it dies and it dies and it dies A million little times Leave the perfume Welcome back to another episode of Hive Mind, a pop culture podcast. My name is Erin Geary, and I will be your host. Last Thursday, with only 24 hours notice, Taylor Swift announced she would be surprise releasing her eighth studio album called Folklore. This move was really out of character for Taylor. Historically, she has been known to do excessive promo and to kind of tease out her albums over long periods of time. This felt a lot more DIY. Um, it, It had a sort of spontaneous to it. Personally, I am like a huge proponent of surprise album releases. I think it makes things so much more fun for the listener. The music feels more intimate because there's less of a middleman. The work leaves the star's hands and is immediately transferred over to the fans. And I always kind of wondered why Taylor was not taking advantage of this mode of release, especially as it's become more popular, because so much of Taylor Swift's brand relies on her relationship with her fans. That's kind of um, what she's most known for, being really open and confessional to them, being really invested in their lives. So I always thought that this would be such a good strategy for her. Anyway, so because of the way she was releasing this album, it kind of piqued my interest. I have to preface this episode by saying I am not a huge Taylor Swift fan. She's always been fascinating to me, and I do find myself reading about her a lot Um, and also I I do listen to all her releases as they come out but she's not one of my favorites and I I don't listen to her work super regularly with the exception of a couple songs this is mostly because I don't love her tone like her actual singing voice I have always been infatuated by her songwriting um, and I've become increasingly so over the past couple of albums I actually think Taylor Swift is very similar to Lord who is one of my favorite artists they both have a similar writing style that that does resonate with me I just think that Taylor's work in the past has been really obscured by her celebrity so much so that it's kind of distracting to me um, and puts me off a little bit even when I don't like her work I can definitely admit that it holds a lot of promise and a lot of potential or maybe that it works but it doesn't work for me like I understand why people like it it would be remiss to kind of um skip over a big pivotal career defining release like this so I was like I gotta check it out um gotta see what folklore is all about I really think that this is an album that benefits from close reading it's an album where the lyrics need to marinate a little bit so like for me I listened to this album once through and I was like eh kind of boring like that was my initial reaction to it um but then I went back and I studied the lyrics and I unpacked them and I spent a lot of time kind of um sitting with each line and I have a much deeper reverence for the project now I can't say I love this album but there are a few tracks that I think are incredible I think when Taylor's good she's really good because she's so sincere and aggressive when she communicates a message if it's working that's really amplified and if it's not that's also really amplified My goal on this podcast episode today is to pinpoint exactly what message Taylor is trying to communicate here. Because the album's called Folklore, right? And when we think of folklore, we think of stories that are passed down orally. We think of legacy. So by making folklore the titular symbol or image here, um, we can really tell that, that Taylor wants what's being said here 
to be what she's remembered by. Or, you know, she wants this work to be lasting. I've always picked up on Taylor being a little concerned with her legacy. From her lyrics, we know that she's she's not someone who just like lives in the moment. She's someone who documents things. She's someone who maybe orchestrates moments to be beautiful so that they can be subjects of of her art. So by crafting a record and naming it Folklore, she's saying like, this is what I want to be communicated to the next generation about me. And for someone like Taylor, who is such a media darling, who has had her quote unquote narrative kind of co-opted by the press, it does feel like she's taking a stand here and trying desperately to keep control over the way she's perceived. Now, of course, the title Folklore also refers to the set of symbols and imagery that Taylor is pulling from on this record. If you haven't yet heard the buzz or you haven't listened to the album yet, it is an indie rock album, essentially. It's a big departure from country Taylor. It's a big departure from pop Taylor. It's a big departure from whatever she was doing on the Reputation album. <laughs> Taylor worked on this project with Jack Antonoff of the band Bleachers. Jack Antonoff and Taylor have been songwriting partners for several years now. He's become a pretty big pop songwriter. Taylor kind of put him on. He also worked with Lord on the album Melodrama, which is one of my favorite albums of all time, and probably an album that I'll be referencing on this episode today. Jack Antonoff is known for making these really wistful, nostalgic, emotional pop songs. You know, they're usually songs that are kind of stuffed with feeling, so much so that the songs are bursting at the seams, that the songs are kind of giddy and euphoric, even when they're about sadness. But Jack Antonoff isn't Taylor's only songwriting collaborator here. On Folklore, Taylor is also working with Aaron Dressner, who is from the band The National. And I think it's his influence that makes the album more brooding. Taylor Swift albums have always been moody, but this one is moody in like a existential dread kind of way. You know what I mean? Like this album is spooky. And like I said, Taylor uses a lot of storybook fairy tale images to kind of communicate this mood. And when I say fairy tale, I mean like Grimm's fairy tales, not like Disney. There's like an austere darkness here that's new to Taylor. In the past, when she's tried to be dark, um, it's come across as flimsy. On Folklore, she's pretty invested in it. This has been a major talking point in the reviews of the album so far. For instance, Pitchfork said, quote, while it's true that folklore pushes the limits of Swift sound in a particular, perhaps unexpected direction, her reference points feel more like mainstream indie homage than innovation, taking cues from her collaborators' work and bits of nostalgia. The review that was printed in the New York Times kind of takes this a step further. They say, quote, it tautly encapsulated the way that mopey interiority has often been perceived as, make that mistaken for, depth. It's a trap that whole genres are built on. They say that the album, quote, underscores how frail and unversatile the alleged seriousness of indie rock is. On my first listen through of the record, I was also a little bit preoccupied by the genre. I was trying to figure out why she was playing around in this genre. Upon a little more research, I understand that Taylor is a fan of, of indie rock and consumes a lot of it. I wasn't aware of this. I did know her to be a big poptimist, but I don't know, like it's a very specific playground. No matter how much Taylor has succeeded at the pop game over the years, she's always kind of drowning in it. When I was listening, I was wondering, like, 
is this an out for her? Is this a way she can kind of um, get a little breathing room? Like, is this an act of self-protection? Or is it an attempt to change her folklore? Is it anti-pop in that way? Is it reaching toward a depth that she doesn't think pop can allow for? I don't want to believe that that's what it is because something I've always admired about Taylor is that she is unapologetically pop and she's always made use of the pop confines. I've never read her as somebody who's been limited by them. Is the indie rockness of folklore what makes it kind of good? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I actually think that because Taylor's vocals are kind of weak, she sounds better on a classically pop song. There's more in the instrumentation to support her voice. I actually think a lot of these tracks sound hollow, which is not a bad thing. I, I do think that the subject matter lends itself to kind of a more hollow sound. But yeah, like pop looked good on Taylor. This album sounds to me a lot like Lana Del Rey's most recent project, Norman Fucking Rockwell. You took my sadness out of context at the Mariner's apartment complex. I ain't no candle in the wind. I'm the board, the lightning, the thunder, the kind of girl who's gonna make you wonder who you are and who you've been. And who I've been is with you on these beaches, your Venice bitch, your diehard. It has that droll quality to it. Like Lana is someone who's so critically acclaimed, but she doesn't always sound beautiful. Like people don't often describe the tone of her voice as beautiful. It's more so raw or emotive. Beauty of vocals is kind of besides the point, but Lana Del Rey is known for this kind of thing. Like dating back to her earliest work, it's all kind of in this world. Taylor is making such a sudden pivot here. I read an interesting article from The New Yorker. It's from a couple of years ago and it's talking about Carly Rae Jepsen. So, you know, Carly Rae Jepsen had fame from the song Call Me Maybe, which I actually mentioned in my episode last week when I was talking about Song of the Summers. Call Me Maybe was this really sugary, teeny boppery pop anthem. But then Carly Rae Jepsen's subsequent career leans a lot more indie, hyper pop, electro pop kind of thing. This article from The New Yorker calls Carly Rae Jepsen a Mindy artist. So like the word indie with an M in front of it. They also use this term to describe Kehlani and Halsey and Alessia Cara. The way they define this term is, quote, a major artist with indie bona fides. So like someone who's signed to a major label and who's getting that major label treatment, but they, they kind of want to appear like they're more um, independent because people have always seen pop and major labels as like uncool. We've collectively always found it impressive when an artist just like does their thing and it reaches fans authentically. So someone like Carly Rae Jepsen or like Halsey, I actually think Halsey's a great um, example of this. Their record labels continue to push this narrative that they're like a cool indie artist even when they're not anymore. So I don't know if that's what Taylor Swift is doing here. It's my understanding that she recorded this album in two months during quarantine entirely at home and that her record label wasn't aware she wanted to release anything until right before she told her fans. So like I don't know if I would call her a Mindy artist but you know it's this is this is a big departure from what she's done in the past and what she's done in the past has worked so it's also a risk. In that New York Times review I was talking about earlier they say quote becoming a true centrist pop star is a battle Swift never quite won and is a battle no longer worth waging. That part of the review was really provocative to me because yeah, Taylor Swift has had success, but she's always made people mad. Always, 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 one group or another. And she's always tried so hard to be universally beloved and it's like never worked out. So maybe escaping to the indie rock world is a way of 
escaping that battle. Taylor Swift has always loved an era. She loves doing the whole like reinventing yourself thing and she can fucking commit to a theme. Better than most pop stars I'd say, like she sticks with it. And here she's really laser focused on this kind of gothic, spooky, haunting theme. It's very natural. I wouldn't say pastoral, but like, you know, like a graveyard or a forest. I do think these are kind of obvious metaphors for depth, right? When you think of a forest, like it's obviously a metaphor for depth. This album doesn't scare me at all. It's spooky, but in like a warm way, you know, like feeling the presence of a dead relative. You know what I mean? Like there's something comforting about the spookiness. And the lyrics are so whimsical sometimes. So the world she creates is not daunting. It's just a world you want to keep diving deeper and deeper into, kind of like a, you know, going down the rabbit hole. The album opener is a track called The One. We never painted by the numbers, baby, but we were making it count. You know the greatest loves of all time are over now. I guess you never know, never know. And it's another day waking up alone. But we were something, don't you think so? Roaring twenties, tossing pennies in the pool. And if my wishes came, True, it would have been you. In my defense, I have none, but never leaving well enough. Alone. Vocally, this is probably the best song on the album. I don't like being negative. When I say that the vocals aren't aren't very good, I'm not being like a hater. Um, I think it's it's more so like the vocals are not the focus or, you know, like I said about Lana Del Rey, like they're not supposed to sound good. But yeah, on, on this song, The One, they still sound kind of nice. A lot of the lyrics here are callbacks to the lyrics in old Taylor Swift songs. Fans who are really well-versed in her discography could maybe map out some of these references and, and draw the lines between them. This song is pretty standard Taylor Swift. It's a song about love that maybe didn't fully come to fruition and it's like steeped in nostalgia. This is one where the Jack Antonoff um, collaboration is very apparent. Lyrically, it's so similar to Lord's song Supercut. In my head, I play a supercut of us. All the magic we gave off. All the love we had and lost. And in my head, Visions never stop These ribbons wrap me up But when I reach for you There's just a super cut In your car the radio these are both songs about the past looking better in hindsight. So we start to see Taylor acknowledging her tendency to over-glamorize the past. But also there are a few references to the novel The Great Gatsby in this song, which yes, is a novel about disillusion, but the disillusion is about like the American dream, is about fame and wealth, not necessarily about love. So I think that this song, along with a lot of folklore, can kind of be read in two ways. Quite a few of the love breakups songs on this album can be read as songs about 
fame. Taylor's celebrity looks better in hindsight. Like, yeah, she stacks up awards, she stacks up accolades, she stacks up money, but the whole thing feels kind of flawed and fake to her. Or maybe she doesn't feel as though she's arriving anywhere. What's the end goal? Like, what's the point of this? If this is an album about legacy, will the folklore surrounding Taylor Swift just be about how she was so successful and famous? Cause that's shallow and empty, right? So like I said, we get this vibe of existential dread here. <laughs> the next track is a song called Cardigan. This song makes references to Peter Pan. So first we get the Gatsby references that allow us to start thinking about fame. Now we get Peter Pan references. What do you think of when you think of Peter Pan? You think of maturity versus childlikeness. And we realize that this is another hurdle for Taylor Swift. It's another point of contention in her life. There's a bluesy quality in the vocals here and we use lots of gothic tropes. You know, she says stuff like, she talks about haunting someone. She, she talks about the smell of smoke. She talks about shadows. On the night of the album's release, Taylor apparently did a live stream where she talked about how this album features songs from different point of views, different perspectives. So she's like pretending to be characters and writing from their point of view. So much of pop is first person, especially Taylor Swift's pop. She's always been really honest about her life in her lyric. When we listen to a Taylor Swift song, we assume that the story we're hearing are things that happened to her. She said in this live stream that Cardigan, along with two other songs on the album, August and Betty, are part of this like um, trilogy where she is is using the perspective of three different characters who are all teenagers in a love triangle together. Personally, I don't think this adds anything to the album. It actually detracts from it in my opinion. I'm a writer myself and I kind of think that fiction is just thinly veiled memoir. When we choose to write fiction, we're creating a little distance between ourselves and the things we say, which can maybe feel safer or which can allow us to be more honest. If Taylor weren't to have said that these songs were from someone else's perspective, no one would know. The song August that's part of this trio is beautiful. It's a song about missed opportunities, but also a song about not being in the moment, not being present, like watching your life in the rearview mirror as it's happening. And I think this is like the curse of a writer or, you know, anyone who's, who's kind of a historian of their own life, who's concerned with memorializing the things that happened to them. Just in case you call and say, meet me behind the mall. 
It's very obviously written by someone whose life has passed them by. I remember hearing Lord talk once about like seeing herself from a third person point of view. I think the language she used was seeing herself from above. There's something almost sad about that. If you lose touch with your sensory body for the sake of art, you're like half a person. But yeah, August is such a fluttery, butterflies in your stomach kind of song. It's almost like Taylor's trying to recover a memory she didn't appreciate at the time. Like she's trying to build back that world. I saw someone tweet or something about how the bridge feels like you're riding a seesaw and I like lost my mind at this simile. This song is so buoyant and it has such movement to it. The bridge is this back and forth, this teetering, which I think is representative of Taylor's two desires. On one hand, she wants to document everything. She wants to make art that lasts. She wants to be forever. And on the other hand, she wants to live and to feel. And this is a constant dance. It almost bums me out that Taylor says this is from the perspective of like another person. The last song in the fictional trilogy is this song called Betty. Whew, Betty is a real rabbit hole to go down. Betty, I know where it all went wrong. Your favorite song was playing from the far side of the gym. I was nowhere to be found. I hate the crowds, you know that. Plus, I saw you dance with him. You heard the rumors from Ignis. You can't believe a word she says most times. But this time it was true. The worst thing that I ever did was what I did to you. So for as long as I can remember, there has been rumors that Taylor Swift is not straight, that she's had these secret affairs with women. Most notably, model Carly Kloss, who has been one of Swift's best friends for years, as well as Diana Agron, who plays Quinn on Glee. I talked about her a couple weeks ago on my Glee episode. This is very much speculation. <laughs> you know, these are almost like conspiracy theories. If you wanna like close one eye and hang upside down and look at Taylor's relationships with these women through a very specific lens, you can kind of see what people are talking about. This song, Betty, it's a love song to a girl, but it's from the perspective of a person named James. I know a lot of people accuse Taylor Swift of queer baiting, so like trying to appeal to an LGBTQ fan base. Who am I to say whether or not Taylor's had any relationships with women? I think there's purposeful ambiguity here. We get the name James, but we don't get pronouns. Taylor Swift was named after James Taylor, so Taylor is James. Carly Kloss's middle name is Elizabeth, so Carly Kloss is Betty. This is a song about Taylor Swift and Betty. I do think a lot of this is like an intentional overreading, which I think is beautiful. I think it's something that queer people do to satiate them themselves when they're not getting representation that they need or want. But I guess more largely this song Betty is about vulnerability, about asking for what you want from a partner, or about being clear with your intentions. 
a lot of these love songs are maybe allegories for larger questions about fame, about um, growing up, aging. I actually think the song that is more explicitly queer is the song Seven. Now, shit, let me just geek out over Seven for a minute. This song is beautifully written. The lyrics are so supple and quivering and exposed. She's using this chilling voice where she sounds like a ghost or something, and she's speaking about childhood. She's speaking about being seven years old and being kind of wild and feral. Please picture me in the trees. I hid my peak at seven When you're seven years old, you're so authentic. You do everything with such an open heart. You're not like jaded at all. She paints this scene where she's seven and she's on a swing and she's in Pennsylvania and she asks her fans, will you please remember me like this? Which feels so disarming. You're like, oh my God, is she talking to me? <laughs> How often as listeners are we called out like this? Are we invited in? She's asking us as listeners a favor. Famous artists sometimes use their music to remind us of their accomplishments, of their accolades. You know, we especially see this in hip hop. Artists gotta name drop how many Grammys they have or, you know, how much money they made. And she's switching this dynamic up because she has closets full of awards and stacks of money, some of the highest grossing tours of all time, famous influential friends and millions of Instagram followers, houses and property in all different states. But she's saying, will you please remember me as this big-hearted, tenacious little girl? Will you please remember me as curious? Will you please remember me as bewildered? This is so beautiful to me. <laughs> There's this great line where she says, with Pennsylvania under me, are there still beautiful things? And I think this really illuminates some of the other songs. Taylor doesn't have access to emotion the way she did as a kid. It's been kind of sterilized. It's been kind of shaken out of her. To be so open publicly must put a damper on um, your willingness to trust the world around you. Probably living in a small town in Pennsylvania was more fulfilling because it was more real. When I said earlier that this song Seven is probably the most queer song on the album, I'm not necessarily referring to Taylor potentially being bisexual or whatever. I'm looking at verse two, which depicts this childhood relationship that's kind of fraught by the big bad world. And I've been meaning to tell you your house is haunted your dad is always mad and that must be why and i think you should come live with me and we can be pirates then you won't have to cry or hide in the closet and just like a folk song our love will be passed on. we see the 
that really curious seven-year-old Taylor Swift um, kind of intuitively picking up on her friend's dad's anger and then promising this friend support. There's a line about the friend having to hide in a closet, which, yeah, could mean a million things, right? Like this could be an image of, of a little kid hiding from an abusive father or just hiding their secrets or hiding themselves. Um, but, you know, using the phrase hide in the closet feels a little bit intentional here. Whether or not it's something that Taylor Swift relates to personally is besides the point. Like she did include this purposefully because this song is about the simultaneous pleasure and terror that comes from being little. And it's maybe a little wink at fans for whom this was their childhood pain. There's a reference toward the end of the song to the movie A Little Princess, which was like one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. A lot of this movie is about girls rescuing other girls, kids finding solace in each other, smart kids who understand something's going on but don't know what. I just think this song Seven is so layered. Another song that's pretty good is Illicit Affairs. Leave the perfume on the shelf That you picked out just for him So you leave no trace behind Like you don't even exist Take the words for what they are A dwindling mercurial high A drug that only worked The first few hundred times And that's the thing about illicit affairs And clandestine means. This to me was another song where I had to listen to it a couple of times to get it. At first I was like, oh God, this girl is so dramatic. It's one of those songs that's like, our love is an addiction, our love is toxic. You know, just describing this really shitty relationship where two people have to like sneak around and one is like embarrassed of the other. And then I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess this song is about her having a lack of privacy as a public figure. For the past few years, Taylor has apparently been in a relationship with a guy named Joe Alwyn. This is Taylor's first relationship that hasn't been hyper-publicized and a topic of tabloid scrutiny. She says in this song that having a private relationship is making her feel like she doesn't even exist. And after I really sat with that line, all these light bulbs were going off in my head. Does Taylor think that everything about her needs to be public in order to be real? For her, does documenting things give them validity? I mean, what's the point of memoir? Why do we write it? Life is weird and awkward, and I think people who like to have control like to storyfy their life. You know, we like to give it a beginning, a middle, and an end. We like to make sure it all flows. We like to just trim right off the times we did something a little impulsive or mean or not the best. I think that this song, Illicit Affairs, is about a transfer of power. Power. Having a private relationship that's not the business of the media has been challenging for Taylor and she feels like she's losing control. And here, by writing about those feelings, she's taking back the power again. Taylor has the power because Taylor's the one doing the telling. Have you guys ever heard that old proverb that's like, um, until the lion learns to write, tales of hunting will always glamorize the hunter. We get a real sense of Taylor's insecurity here. If she's not the one describing her relationship, who's gonna be describing it? What would happen if she doesn't look good in someone else's telling of her relationship? She has a total obsession with being liked and being perceived the way she wants to be perceived. She talks about this quite a bit in her documentary, Miss Americana. You know, my entire moral code as a kid and now is a need to be thought of as good. That's dangerous. That's not 
It was all I wrote about. It was all I wanted. It was the complete and total belief system that I subscribed to as a kid. Do the right thing. Do the good thing. And obviously I'm not a perfect person by any stretch, but overall the main thing that I always tried to be was, um, like, just, like a good girl. The final two tracks on the album, Peace and Hoax, are also related to her relationship. On the song Peace, we get a real moment of maturity from Taylor. She's finally holding herself accountable for being somebody that loves drama and loves chaos. She says it, quote, lives in her, which, oh my God, this is so Lord melodrama, right? Lord goes, you know, I, I told you this was melodrama. In this song, we get the sense that Taylor feels as though she's died for Joe Alwyn. And you know that I'd swing with you for the fences, sit with you in the trenches, give you my wild, give you a child, give you the silence that only comes when two people understand each other, family that I chose now that I see you, brother, as my brother. Is it enough? There's robbers to the east, clowns to the west I'd give you my sunshine, give you my best But the rain is always gonna come if you're standing with me She really likes this guy so much that she's willing to hide part of her life. And that feels like a death to her. Because who is she if she's not the one constructing herself? Do we as people die in anonymity? I have always believed that Taylor is at her best when she's being hyper-specific. And this is a moment where what she's saying is so hyper-specific that it becomes universal. Because all of us craft public identities, especially with the internet. I mean, we make the narrative of who we are. I can look up to tomorrow and decide I feel like a totally different person and I can communicate that message of myself so much that people eventually believe it. But is that a death of me? You know, every time I articulate who I am, that is making me more real in the minds of others. It's helping to materialize me. If Taylor decided she wanted to stop writing songs about her life, she would suddenly be subject to other people's stories being printed on her. And she's so insecure about what may be said about her that she can't live like that and it's with her relationship. We see on the song Hoax her describing her love as a sadness. You know I left a part of me back in New York. You knew the hero died, so what's the movie for? You knew it still hurts underneath my scars from when they pulled me apart. You knew the password, so I let you in the door. You knew you won, so what's the point of keeping score? You knew it still hurts underneath my scars From when they pulled me apart But what you did was just as dark ah, Darling, this was just as hard Her love is a gun. Her love is a twisted knife. At first I was like rolling my eyes at some of these similes because they're so like 
been done. But you know, there is a certain violence to privacy. What is it that makes being in a relationship like being famous? Why does Taylor so often parallel these two ideas? Relationships and fame are good, right? I mean, they should be good, but there's an insidiousness to them. At least Taylor feels so. She seems to have this idea that her life is like cursed with trouble and drama and danger, that it kind of follows her wherever she goes. The song Peace is like a false ending of the album. She kind of creates a straw man. She makes us think that the good outweighs the bad, that even though this relationship or maybe more largely her relationship to fame is kind of fraught, that it is worth it. The song Hoax is like this volta, right? This final twist. Suddenly all she can see in her life is the bad. Is this self-sabotage? Is she afraid of peace? Does she think it will make her less relevant? There's a song earlier on the record called Mirrorball. It's really like Claro-ish. It has like a high school dance feeling. Like, I don't know why, but it reminds me of prom. Taylor on this song acknowledging that she needs praise really bad. She's willing to risk her true self for it. She's willing to contort and bend. She's a try hard. Being a star is not effortless for her. It is really calculated. She wants to maintain her fame. She wants to maintain attention. It's all fake. Everything about her, it's it's fragile. She uses kind of like a dumb symbol of her being a disco ball, her being responsible for the party. But what's a party? right? There's no, there's no sustainable, hearty underbelly of a party. A party is ephemeral. A party begins and it ends hours later. She's frustrated with her inability to put down roots. And so like looking at her constant reinvention from album to album, Taylor hates how easy she becomes people's criticisms of her. This is the dark gothic core of this album. Taylor comes off as extremely flawed and unlikable on this album, but at the same time we see her realizing it. So it's like, okay, she's aware, she's self-aware. Is it any good to be self-aware if you don't know how to like change your habits? Habits. Maybe, right? You can you can stop your habits from hurting others, maybe if you're if you're more self-aware of them. There's a song called The Last Great American Dynasty. It's a song where Taylor tells the story of this buried historical figure named Rebecca Harkness, who was the heir to the Standard Oil Company. In recent years, Taylor bought a home in Rhode Island that was previously owned by this woman. And so I guess she became like really infatuated by her. The pool with champagne and swam with the big names and blew through the money on the boys and the and losing on card game bets with Dolly And they said, there goes the last great American dynasty Who knows if she never showed up what could have been There goes the most shameless woman this town has ever seen She had a marvelous time The 
This is like one of those like well-behaved women rarely make history type songs. Like, do you know those people? Like people who have like a Marilyn Monroe poster in their living room. <laughs> the crux of this song is that this woman, Rebecca Harkness, was like um, loud and shameless and unapologetic. And she was really judged for these things and like blamed for her husband's downfall. Taylor likens this woman, Rebecca Harkness, to her. This same sentiment continues on the track Mad Woman. Every time you call me crazy, you're getting more crazy, what about that? And when you say I seem angry, you're getting more angry. And there's nothing like a mad woman, what a shame she went bad. No one likes a mad woman, you made her like that. And you poke that bear till her claws come out, and you I think this is a good song, but it's like really over the top dramatic. It's one of a few songs that's about Taylor's feud with her former record label, Big Machine Records. I really don't want to get into all this drama because I find it really tedious and not relevant to like the lives of uh, the everyday person. But Taylor essentially had like a business conflict with these guys, um, Scott Borchetta and Scooter Braun. You know, a, a business conflict with powerful men. I do think that she opportunizes a little bit here. She airs out a lot about the personal lives of these guys. You know, like she randomly brings up Scooter Braun's marriage issues and infidelity with his wife, which I kind of feel like is not Taylor Swift's business. It's not the business of her listeners. I like this song better in context than on its own because like I said before, we later see Taylor admit that she sometimes stirs the pot. And I think there are definitely ways she can handle these issues she's having um, with her work in the business world um, without kind of stooping to the level of the people who have wronged her. And by the end of the album, I feel like she knows that. Who knows if she'll change the way she goes about things, but she's aware. Her song, My Tears Ricochet, is also about this same situation. I didn't have it in myself to go There's a line in My Tears Ricochet where she says, when I'd fight, you used to tell me I was brave. And so I wonder if how much of this need for chaos and attention um, stems from the men who made Taylor Swift, how much they were encouraging this behavior in her because it sold well. My Tears Ricochet is set at her funeral and she's coming back and haunting these men who've wronged her. It's just a lot, like it's really intense. The rest of the songs on the record kind of feel like standalones. There's a song called Exile that's about a relationship kind of sputtering to its end. Second, third, and hundredth chances Balancing on breaking branches Those eyes add insult to injury film before and I didn't like the ending I'm not sure problem anymore so who am I offending now you are my it's a pretty
pretty destructive song that doesn't go anywhere, very Lana Del Rey. And then there's a song called This Is Me Trying. This is like the gifted kids anthem. Taylor talks about being so smart and creative back in the day that adults kind of pushed her along too fast and she never developed an emotional maturity. She talks about having trouble forgiving people. She talks about struggling to not be impulsive and obsessed with karma. She really, really struggles to apologize. I think that Taylor is so much more interesting when she's talking about herself than when she's talking about others. So a song like This Is Me Trying, in my opinion, works better than Mad Woman or My Tears Ricochet. Because she's owning up. Relationships are two ways. All kinds of relationships, right? Friendships, romantic, business. A song like This Is Me Trying um, does humanize her a bit. You know, I hate to make this comparison, but it is very Kanye. There's also a song called Invisible String. Bad was the blood of the song in the cab on your first trip to LA. You ate at my favorite spot for dinner. Bold was the waitress on our three year trip getting lunch down by the lakes. She said I looked like an American singer. This is a really straightforward song about fate. It's about her realizing that maybe things happen in her life for a reason, that there's kind of a circular, cyclic nature to the way our lives work. You know, our lives end where they began. We're in the same place differently. This is good. It just feels like kind of like a one-off song. And then <laughs> there's the song Epiphany, which really doesn't fit the narrative. This is like a COVID-19 song. Big, big Imogen Heap vibes here. Like, tell me this isn't the song Hide and Seek by Imogen Heap. It's about comparing um, soldiers at war to essential workers in like a hospital. It's a good song. It's like it's pretty angelic um, and interesting, but you know it's it's too COVIDy. Like 
are people going to remember this one? I feel like it's a little too specific to our current moment. I guess she's using it to timestamp the album a little bit to show that these realizations came to her during a time of isolation. I read an article from Vulture where they call this album A24 Core, which is so funny. Yeah, this album has qualities of A24 movies. It is very self-involved, but it's also very moving and beautiful. I really appreciate when writers step out of their comfort zone. It usually makes for pretty interesting work. I don't love the sound of it, like I probably won't be playing this album over and over, but I'll definitely be sitting with what she's talking about here, thinking about how it relates to my own life. And that's the point of folklore. She wants the stories to stick with us. Is Taylor's desire to do this healthy? No. Do we all do it? Yeah, we all tell our own folklore. Maybe if we're all self-aware about it, we can do something to change it so that we can all live more authentically, so that we can all live the way we were when we were seven. I'm gonna play us out today with a song I really liked from Taylor's last album, Lover. This is a song called Cruel Summer. I kind of wish it was a single. It was kind of a bop. Thank you for unpacking this album with me. I can't wait to see you next week and enjoy. Bye.